Billy Joel, an absolute classic, scenes from an Italian restaurant. Not only is he a fabulous performer, but a magnificent musician and songwriter. It's described as a love letter to the growers, producers and the wines of Australia. Written by a pair of American master sommelier, Jane Lopes and her husband, Jonathan Ross. It's called How to Drink Australian, 495-page hardcover book that details over 600 producers and their wines, plus specially drawn maps of the wine regions in each state. I spoke to Jane, the only woman in Australia to pass the Master Sommelier exam, and found her to be quite an evangelist for Australian wine. She now lives in Nashville, Tennessee, where she and her husband run legend Australian wine imports. So I wonder what you'd think if uh, you came across a book called How to Drink Australian. Would you think of the very finest Australian wines? I hope you wouldn't think of Foster's Lager, which a few years ago might have been uh, a definition sitting behind a title like that. But I have one of the authors of this book is on the line with me now, Jane Lopes. Jane is in the US, but she has worked here in Australia, indeed here in Melbourne, for um, she and her partner, Jonathan, who's also a co-author, have worked with Attica and also with the Rockpool Group. So those are credentials that people here in Australia, certainly in hospitality, understand. Jane, welcome to Travel Writers Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's lovely to, uh, to be able to, to talk to you across the, uh, across the waters there. You're based in Nashville, Tennessee. What an interesting place to be a, a wine importer of Australian wine. Do blokes like Keith Urban help you out over there? <laughs> you know, we haven't connected with Keith. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying. <laughs> well, Nicole's no, also um... there. She's an Aussie. <laughs> yes. I'm sure she drinks yes. wine. Um, don't worry. We are trying to get them a copy of the book. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, well, that's always good. Well, I've got a, an e-book copy, which is handy if you want to have it in your pocket because... Uh, this is 495 pages. It, it wouldn't be something you'd want to lug around, right? No, and we have lugged a copy around around the world. So we're, uh, we, know, we know firsthand it's, it's not a good move. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jane, it's described by your publishers as your love letter to the Australian growers and producers and, I guess, uh, to the actual wines themselves. Is that how you see it? That's actually a quote from my husband uh, and, right. and co-author, uh, John Ross. So, yeah, he was the one who, who originally said that. And and I absolutely agree. You know, we fell in love with Australian wine when we moved over there in 2017. And we just really wanted a resource that could capture kind of all the, you know, the, the nuance and the incredible quality that we saw going on in the Australian wine industry. Right. So did you know much about Australian wine before you came to work here? We thought we did. <laughs> we, you know, we had both kind of passed the third level of the sommelier exams, um, which is in and of itself very difficult. John had actually passed the the theory portion of, of the master sommelier exam. And so we, you know, we considered ourselves pretty knowledgeable sommeliers. And, and when we moved to Australia, we realized we, uh, yeah, kind of knew nothing about Australian wine. Oh, really? Okay. Were you sort of basing the knowledge you thought you had on what was available in the US at that point? Exactly. There, you know, at that point, probably, you know, it was less than 10%, maybe, maybe significantly less than 10% of Australian wineries were exporting to the US. 
And there just weren't a lot of great educational resources on Australian wine either. If you think of all the many books on Burgundy alone or Champagne alone, and there just wasn't that sort of scholarship on Australian wine. So we kind of read and consumed what we could and we thought that was good enough. But yeah, we realized there was so much more to learn when we when we moved over there. Mm. And of course, living in the US, you've got an incredible amount of uh, imported wine, uh, apart from what's produced in the Napa, all these wonderful uh, areas of uh, of United States. You there's, there's any amount of wine from Spain, from France, uh, sort of new world and old world, I guess. So we have to fight for whatever little bit of space is left in the market, yeah? Totally, totally. Um, And, you know, that's why we kind of felt, especially living in New York, that we sort of had access to everything that was worth having access to, Mm. which is certainly a naive opinion. And, and yeah, it is, you know, (laughs) speaking on the other side of it now, where we came back to the U.S. in 2020 and began importing Australian wine, uh, it definitely is an, a hustle, a, a little bit of a grind to, to carve out some market space for Australian wine. But we're, you know, we're fighting the good fight. Yeah, well, that's great. Can you remember the first Australian wine you ever tasted? No. <laughs> I can remember the first Australian wine I tasted in Australia. Which was? Um, I, it was Murdoch Hill Surrey Pinot Meunier. Oh, okay. I had just landed and I went to a local wine shop and I just picked some Australian stuff off the, off the shelves that looked interesting and popped that bottle and yeah, was really impressed by it. Mm. Uh, so that definitely, yeah, left it, left an impression. Right. Now, once you worked here and, and, you know, Rockpool, Attica, those, those are, uh, uh, hospitality venues with a high degree of uh, credibility. And I would imagine a pretty expensive wine list. Do you find you're educated, on top shelf or were you able to sort of um have picnic wine so to speak um you mean on on the lists uh, at attica did you find you had to drink a lot of uh, sort of expensive wine and that's where your education then came from or did the regular sort of uh you know $12.99 bottles of uh, chardonnay cross your lips Maybe not those exact bottles but but definitely you know John and I both really applied ourselves to taste as much as possible. Mm. Um, I think it was probably a little self-selective what, you know, reps from distribution companies were bringing us to taste. But I'd say we were routinely tasting things that were anywhere from like $12 wholesale. So probably more like approaching, you know, $18, $20 retail to, of course, things that were, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s wholesale. I guess you are naturally compare the wine you would drink here with what you'd been used to back in the US? Yeah, of course. I think there's uh, always sort of natural inclination to to compare. And especially, I think, with our training to, to, you know, to pass the exams at the Court of Master Sommeliers, you know, you're really training yourself to be able to approach a wine blind and be able to know what it is. Right. So you're always, you know, you're always thinking, what would I, what would I call this if I was given this wine in a blind tasting? And, and I think for Australian wine and, and, you know, I mean the best Australian wine. And by that, I mean grapes that are planted in the right grape, the right place, the picked at the right time, you yeah. know, um, that there's a real sort of focused and, and sharp viticultural aspect to them. Right. Um, Professional you know, wines, they, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think the wines 
really surprised us because what we saw in the U.S. were largely big, bold reds and sort of very lean whites, you know, like the Hunter Semillon or the Claire Riesling. And so that was sort of what we believed Australian wine was. And, right. and I think that's what a lot of Americans believe Australian wine is. So to really sort of see everything in between those styles was was quite surprising. And, you know, we, we definitely come with palettes that are, you know, before we moved to Australia, we definitely drink more European wine than anything else. Sure. And we were really surprised how much the wines appealed to our, you know, European leaning sensibilities that they really had this terroir, this balance, this freshness that, you know, were qualities that we really came to love in, in European wine. Mm. So now, do, I, I guess you would choose probably to drink a bit more Australian wine than you did in the past, would you? Oh, yeah. I mean, we... Unfortunately, you know, you just don't come by it all too often in, in the U.S., um, but we always try to pick up Australian bottles here that we haven't had. We do drink wine from our, our own portfolio, but also, you know, we're, you know, we got to sell that wine, so we can't drink too, too much of it. No, I understand. Um, and. And when we're in Australia, like, we do not want to drink anything but Australian wine. We're really, we usually have a list going into our Australian trips of producers we're trying to track down and things we want to taste. And um, it's just so, you know, fun and exciting for us mm. to kind of continually be able to see what's out there. So you still travel back to Australia to refresh the, the mind and the palate, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We weren't able to get back much in the first couple years back because your borders were locked down pretty tight but yeah we've made it back we've made it back a few times in the last couple years so if you were in an elevator and you had only a few floors to pitch australian wine to uh, an american wine drinker how do you do it what do you say someone who drinks american wine or just an american an american (laughs) who drinks wine yeah Yeah. Um, I would just say these are impeccably made wines of great value that really appeal to everybody, whether you come from more of a European drinking slant or you drink more American, South American, South African. You know, I think there are wines for for everybody um, at at great value coming out of Australia. Mm. And uh, are they still good value? I've sort of heard Americans sometimes comment that they thought wine here was expensive and and along with food actually but um how do you how do you see our wine positioned at the retail level in the u.s yeah i think it's a little hard for people to wrap their heads around the value that australia presents because it's not sure there's like the yellowtail level of value but we're not talking about that yeah we're talking about something you know let's say a a cool climate syrah an adelaide hill syrah that would be $40 on a retail shelf in the US. Now, someone might say, oh, well, that's expensive. I can get Saint Joseph for that price. But I really, I really like it. I think it's great. Mm. And so I think the problem isn't that the wines don't represent great quality. And I would argue that wine is going to be a lot better than any Saint Joseph you can get for $40 retail. But the problem is the name recognition, that there isn't this sort of prestigious appellation that people know, like, uh, you know, like many of the European appellations and, and places like Napa, that can kind of almost vouch for the quality, where it really, these wines really take ambassadors, people recognizing the quality, recognizing the value to put that bottle on their shelf and say, hey, this is actually an incredible savory 
cool climate Syrah that I think, you know, offers even better than what you can get from the Rhone Valley at this price. Sure. Okay. Now, it has been put to me, we have a resident wine expert uh, on the show here, Tyson Stelzer. I'm sure you know the name. Uh, of course, yeah. He, he's put it to me that some of the sparkling wines being produced in the north of Tasmania would stand on a global stage any day of the week. How, how do you see our, uh, our evolution in sparkling wine, what we used to call champagne? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with him. I, I think, you know, and, and just like any category, it's not every single one, but I think there are several producers who are making uh, incredibly uh, high quality Tasmanian sparkling. And, you know, we, we have a couple of Tasmanian sparkling producers in our portfolio that right. we would absolutely put side by side with comparably, comparably priced champagne and I think they would come out on top. Right. Okay. Oh, well, that's good to hear. It's uh, always nice to sort of get a bit of reinforcement about the product you're producing. I've just got to ask you, though, in, in these times of change, and I guess especially climate change, do you have to re-educate yourself on a good wines um, produced faithfully for many years in correct locations suddenly no longer right, so no longer a good fit? Uh, because uh, climate change has uh, just turned the tables on us. Yeah, I think that's really a thing. And I think, you know, the best thing that Australians can do and that they are absolutely doing is just there's a lot of research going on towards climate change. And there's a real dexterity that I see amongst Australian producers and a willingness to change ways. If the way you managed your canopy worked 20 years ago, but doesn't work anymore today, you're going to change that. And sometimes it's relatively smaller changes like that. And sometimes it's more major changes like what grapes you're going to plant. But I think they're the great thing that, you know, the, the benefit that Australia does have going for it is that it can have this dexterity. You know, it's much harder if you are in uh, Burgundy to <laughs> to plant new grapes. Just that lack of Australia land, really. No, I mean, just the identity being so tied to Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Right. That it would be very hard to all of a sudden say we're, you know, planting Syrah <laughs> in sure. Bone Romanay. And so I think there is that benefit in sort of these like, quote unquote, you know, relatively younger wine regions um, right. that there's this, yeah, dexterity. Tyson's always great when I talk to him. He's always got a tricky little wine that he can mention to our listeners. And our <laughs> listeners are not only in Australia, the, uh, the next biggest body of our listenership is in the United States in Canada awesome. and in uh, in Europe. So is there something you could say to the great audience, uh, the greater audience, what is there's a tricky little Australian wine that you've never heard of, but it's in the book, and we love the producer, and uh, maybe it's a variety that you may not know, but is worth a try. What would you say to that? I don't know if this is too too mainstream already for an Australian audience, but um, certainly is not for an American audience. You know, what I'm I'm trying to make happen is I want the next big recognizable style of Australian wine in the US to be Australian Grenache. Yeah. I just think there's incredible value. You know, you have a wealth of old vine vineyards. I think there are, you know, places like Barossa and McLaren Vale that they're wishing they had even more. Mm. Um, but it just is a grape that really represents terroir so well. And, you know, I've just really seen in the last 
you know, the, the wines being made in the last 10, 15 years have a much lighter hand to them as well. So they're not, you know, they're not big, oaky, you know, 16 and a half percent alcohol grenaches. They're, um, they're red fruited and medium bodied and just have elegance and finesse. And yeah, those are some of the wines I look out for the most when I'm in Australia. And I would love to see more on the market here in, in the U.S., well, Jane, I hope you end up leading tours of um, Americans with deep pockets down here to uh, <laughs> have a look at our vineyards. Jane Lopes, master sommelier and author of How to Drink Australian, spoke to me from Nashville, Tennessee. The book is published by Murdoch Books. This is the Travel Writer Show on J-Air 88FM in Melbourne. And that brings our first hour to a close, but do stay tuned to J-Air 88FM as we'll be back at 6pm with another hour of Travel Writers Radio. There ain't no stopping or slowing down Let's be wild and free We are the wild We are the free And I find